Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the year was 2008 and Robert Sanchez was texting his friend on his cell phone. Now, a lot of people text their friends on their cell phones. So why am I mentioning Robert Sanchez texting his friend in 2008? Well, Robert Sanchez was a train engineer. And 22 seconds after he sent his last text, his train collided with another. 25 people died, 130 people were injured, and damages were $7 million because during the text, he failed to see the red light which should have told him to stop and wait. In 2012, Captain Francesco was talking with his girlfriend. Now, a lot of people talk to their girlfriends. So why is this so special? Well, Captain Francesco was the captain of the cruise ship Costa Concordia. You may remember it. He was showing off to his girlfriend on the bridge there. And he deviated from the approved route. He brought that massive ship very close to land, too close, and it ran aground and capsized 33 people dead, damages of more than $2 billion. Now, what do these two stories have in common? What they have in common is this. These men had a job to do. They had an office. They had a defined set of responsibilities. And instead of being faithful to that office, they focused on their own personal interests, desires, and pleasures. And when they did not subordinate their own personal desires and pleasures to their office, the result was, in each of these cases, massive damage, brokenness, suffering, and death. And I just gave you two examples, but I could go on for a long time giving examples like this. And in fact, all of the grief All of the brokenness, all of the suffering, and all of the death in this world and this life can be traced to unfaithfulness in office. Now, we're at Lord's Day 12, and we read this Lord's Day in this dusty old document, which is half a millennium old. And it's talking about ordained and anointed and prophets and priests and kings. And we may think to ourselves, why are we talking about this? Christmas is coming on Friday. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. And there are all kinds of things happening in my life. Why do I have to listen to this theology stuff about office and ordination? 
and anointing. What does it have to do, really, with my life? Well, it has everything to do with our life. All of the pain, all of the grief, all of the sadness that we're dealing with, all of the sickness and disease, all of the threats, all of the death. It's all bound up in this question of office. And Christmas has everything to do with the one who was born, whose name is Jesus, yes, but whose title is Christ, whose title is Messiah, whose title is Anointed One. And so Lord's Day 12 is very, very relevant to our lives and to our time. Now, as we go through the sermon, what we're going to do is this. We're going to talk about office generally, what it means. Then we're going to go back to the beginning of history, and we're going to talk about the threefold office of Adam and how he struck out three times, how he was unfaithful. And then we'll finish by looking at the threefold office of Christ and how he was faithful in that office and set things right again. For those of you who like etymology, the word office comes from two Latin words, one of them being opus and the other being the verb to do. Putting them together, you get opificium, which means work to be done. Stuff you got to do, a job to do. That's what office has to do with. It's a calling. It's a, res- it's, a, it's a responsibility. It's a defined set of responsibilities which are bigger than the person who is called to that office. Now, everybody has at least one office, if not a number of offices. There's the office of father and husband and wife, teacher, accountant, employee, business owner. Many of us have various offices. And the responsibilities of our office are such that we are required to subordinate to it our own personal convenience and desires and pleasures. The mothers here know what I'm talking about. Because often when the baby wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning, for some reason the dads have a hard time hearing that and just keep on sleeping. And it's the mom that has to get up and take care of the baby. Now, I would imagine that often mom doesn't really feel like it. If it was up to her, her own pleasure, her own convenience would just to be stay in bed and sleep and rest. But even when, when it's not easy, even when she doesn't feel like it, even when maybe sometimes she's just a little bit frustrated... She gets up and she takes care of little baby because that's her office. That's what moms do. They take care with great cost often. It's a sacrifice of love. Others depend on mom faithfully carrying out her office. We have officers in the church, too. We have the office bearers, the men who carry office, the deacons, the elders, the preacher, 
who have what we call the special offices in the church, and then each and every believer is an office bearer. The office of all believers is something that we all have. We'll talk about that more next week. And when things are done well in an office, then there is blessing and there is life. When someone is not faithful in their office, then things go wrong and there is pain and suffering and death. Back in 2006, when I was still living in Brazil, there was an airliner that crashed, that bumped into a a small private jet above the Amazon. The private jet was not supposed to be in that airspace at that time. The airliner crashed, 154 people died. Now, when the report came out about that crash, it was revealed that 13 times in the set of incidents which led up to this crash, 13 times someone, whether it was one of the pilots or one of the crew or some of the air controllers on the ground, but 13 times someone didn't do their job. It was clear what, the, what they were supposed to do. They had to do a certain set of actions, and they simply didn't fulfill their task. And the sad, the excruciating thing, the agonizing thing about this is that if any one of those 13 incidents had not happened, if just one of those incidents had happened correctly, and if just one of those times somebody had actually done what they were supposed to do, the crash would not have happened. 154 people would not have died. So we see that unfaithfulness, and I think we know that, right? We, when we work with people that do not submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, we often see, we see often many good things, but we sometimes and often see a lot of unfaithfulness where people just kind of do the minimum, and they're just not faithful in doing everything they're supposed to do. And that's sad that we don't just see that in unbelievers, but we often see that in fellow believers and in ourselves as well. Now, all the sin and all the pain and all the brokenness and all the death in our world go back to this problem. They go back to the problem of not being faithful in office And it begins with our first parents, Adam and Eve. King Adam, Queen Eve, king and queen of the human race. They had an office. They had a threefold office. They were given rule and dominion over the entire glorious and holy and pure and good creation of God. They were kings and queens. They were prophets. They received the revelation from the very mouth of God himself. And they were to live by the word and the promises of God. And they were to teach the word and promises of God to their children and their grandchildren and their descendants after them. And they were priests. They were to maintain the holiness of sacred time and sacred space in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was kind of like the the Holy of Holies. 
of this creation. It was a place where they would have intimate communion with God. But he would walk with them and converse with them in the cool of the day. And they were supposed to maintain the holiness of that temple, that holy of holies. They were supposed to build it out and amplify the garden until the whole world one day would be a sacred temple, a garden city filled with holy worshipers. The way it's described in the book of Revelation, that's what they were supposed to be doing and working towards. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Holy Spirit deliberately uses two verbs to describe what they were supposed to do. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And we think work and keep, you know, it's like working, it's like gardening and keeping, it's kind of taking care of it. But if you look at the book of Numbers and you see these, you trace these Hebrew words used here for work and keep, and you trace those words through the scriptures, you see how the Holy Spirit uses those words in other places, and you'll notice that in the book of Numbers, those words are used to describe the holy service of the priests in the tabernacle, to work, it can also be translated to minister, and to keep can also be translated to guard. And these words are used to describe the activities of the priests around the tabernacle. And so they were kings and prophets and priests together. That was their job. And we can look at the fall in a whole bunch of different from a whole bunch of different angles, but one of the angles we can take is to look at the fall in terms of office. Adam and Eve were king and queen. If the fall hadn't happened, then today the world would be still pure and good and holy and and the world would be full of God worshippers and Adam and Eve would be our first parents. They would be the highest authority on the planet, full of the wisdom of God and ruling wisely over all the creatures and over all the people in the world. But that didn't happen because they failed in their office. King Adam, Queen Eve were to rule over the creation and over the creatures. And what happened? There was an inversion of roles here. Everything turned upside down. That's what sin does. That's what the devil does. He twists things. He turns things upside down. He puts things the wrong way around. And there we see King Adam and Queen Eve submitting to the creature rather than governing and ruling the creature. Led astray by an animal that they ought to be leading and instructing. They failed in their office as king and queen. They failed in their office as prophets. Because they were supposed to take the word of God and love the word of God and know the word of God and live by the word of God and base their lives on the word of God and teach the word of God and hold on to the promises of God. But what do they do? They accept the twisting of God's word. They swallow the lie. They don't hold on to the promises of God. They don't rebuke false teaching. 
but they delight in it. They give themselves over to it. They follow it. They fail as kings and queens. They fail as prophets and they fail as priests because they accept the intrusion of the unholy into the holy of holies. They abandon the true worship of God and they embrace the worship of themselves and their own desires. On every count, they strike out when it comes to faithfulness in office. And the consequence is this. They plunge themselves and in them all of the human race into perdition, into lostness. That's the fall. And ever since then, we've been longing for someone to set that right. Ever since then, we've been longing for true and faithful office bearers and office keepers. And we heard that this morning, that in the Old Testament, as as the history of redemption moves forward, we get glimpses of, of what we need in the faithful kings and faithful prophets and faithful priests in the Old Testament Inasmuch as they are faithful to their office, they bring life and they bring blessing. But they're not perfect. They're not enough. They don't undo the brokenness brought about by the unfaithfulness of our first parents. Someone greater is needed, and that's greater someone. We heard him preach this morning again. Is the great king, the great prophet, the great priest, the true and perfect office bearer, the one who will be perfectly faithful, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you read through the Bible from Genesis on, from Genesis 3 on, the whole deal The whole focus is this, that God's people are waiting for him to come. God's people await the Messiah. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. The whole story of the Old Testament is when is Jesus coming? When is the Christ coming? And children, you know what Christ means, right? Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which means anointed. And it's the same meaning as the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. That means anointed too. So English is anointed, Greek is Christ, and Hebrew is Messiah. Anointed, Christ, Messiah. Same word, same title, same meaning. They're all the same, just different languages. The whole Old Testament is longing for the coming of the Messiah. Now the first, Adam's unfaithfulness led to perdition. The last, Adam's faithfulness in his office leads to redemption. He fixes things. He heals things. He restores things. Did you see that in the Lord's Day? Did you see that on page 527? Check it out. There are three sections in the answer. There's the chief prophet and teacher. There's the high priest. There's the king. There are three parts. And did you see what's in each part? Our chief prophet and teacher, 
who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will, and will of God concerning our redemption. Our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us. There's redemption again. And our eternal king, who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Redemption, redemption, redemption. Christ is anointed. Christ has a threefold office. Christ is a prophet, a priest, and a king. Why? So that we may not die but live. So that we may not continue in the pain and the brokenness of this sin-filled world. But that we might know redemption and life and hope and healing. So we don't have to wonder too long what the relevance of Lord's Day 12 is to our daily life. It is in every way relevant. Jesus comes to make things better. Jesus comes to set things right. Jesus comes to fix what was broken. And how does he do it? He does it by being faithful where we were unfaithful. He does it by being the perfect office bearer. Now we confess that he is called Christ, he is called anointed, he is called Messiah, because he was ordained. What is ordination? What does it mean to be ordained? Well, it means to be set aside publicly to an office. You remember when we looked at Jesus' baptism, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he was baptized, he had been on this earth for some 30 years, and he had lived in obscurity, just working with his dad, the carpenter. And then at his baptism, something happens, because he is now consecrated to his office as Messiah. He's going to begin his ministry, and then he is anointed by the Holy Spirit who descends upon him. The Lord Jesus is God of God, very God of very God. He is already full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is His Spirit. But the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus at His baptism for His office, for His calling. That's what ordination is. And it happens in every ordination. The Old Testament with the prophets and priests and kings, when they were ordained, it wasn't just a ritual, but the the oil pouring on these guys' heads was a picture of the spiritual reality happening. That as the oil was poured, the Spirit of God was coming down on these people to equip them for their office. When God calls, He equips. And what a comfort that is to us sinful, weak men who are called to serve in the church. Because sometimes we tremble as we look at the work we have to do and we realize that we just are unable we are not worthy to do it. But then we remember that he has called us. We remember that he has ordained us. And that in that ordination, he pours out his spirit to equip us for the task. That holds for the special office bearers. That holds for all of us as, as men, women, and children who are, have the office of all believers. And that holds for every office that God has given each one of us. When he calls, 
he equips. We do it in the power of the Spirit. And so from that time forth, Jesus begins his ministry. When Jesus arrives on the scene as the Messiah, as the anointed, as the Christ, this is the fulfillment of centuries and centuries of longing, of prophecies of the Old Testament. And right away we see him glorying in his office. Because what happens right after his baptism? He's, he's driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He comes into the presence of Satan who tries to tempt him and to turn him aside from his work. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds to those temptations by being our chief prophet and teacher, by being faithful in the office of prophet, by holding on to the word of God. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus is God. Whatever Jesus says is the word of God. He could have said anything he wanted and it would have been the word of God. But instead what he did is he went to the scriptures. He went to the revelation. And he said over and over and over to the devil, you want me to do this and you want to convince me of that, but it is written. This is the word of God. And I will hold on to it. And then he stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he proclaims to everyone that he is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah of God. He has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach the good news, to be the chief prophet and teacher. And he, he quotes, he reads Isaiah chapter 61, the first part. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus begins and he does his ministry with a clear understanding of his ordination, his anointing, his office. And he says to the disciples in John chapter 15, he says, all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He doesn't work with his disciples on a need-to-know basis, but all that he has heard, he passes on the full revelation of God and he makes known to his people the Father and you know, he didn't just do that while he was on earth. He'd already been doing that for centuries before he even came to this earth. And you'll understand that if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 in your Bible. 1 Peter 1, verse 11. And Peter's talking here about the prophets in the Old Testament. They were prophesying about grace, and, but they, they had questions about the prophecies of the future. And so 1 Peter 1.11, they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So they were not just prophesying about the sufferings of Christ. They were not just prophesying about the glorious victory of Christ. But they were doing that by whom? By the power of the Spirit of Christ in them. So all of the prophecies of the Old Testament is already the Lord Jesus speaking. 
He's speaking before his incarnation. It is his word. It is his faithfulness to his office as our chief prophet and teacher. And after having spoken through the prophets over all those centuries and millennia, what do we read in Hebrews chapter 1? He finally comes in the flesh to speak to us directly. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus, our chief prophet and teacher, came in the flesh. He held on to the word of God. He lived by the word of God. He taught the word of God. And he proclaimed the word of God. And he fulfilled the word of God. He did everything perfectly what Adam, our first father, did not do. And so also in his office as high priest, we remember Psalm 110, where the Lord speaks and prophesies of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, you're a one-of-a-type priest. You're a unique priest who will bring a unique sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. And what does the Scripture say? Hebrews 9, verse 12. If you open to Hebrews 9, 12, you see the kind of sacrifice that our great high priest brings. Hebrews 9, 12 When he appeared as our high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. And if you look at a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, The apostle says every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He is a -a one-of-a-kind priest that brings a -a one-of-a-kind sacrifice. Every day the priests would bring sacrifices. Every week they would bring double on the Sabbath. Every year on Yom Kippur, the day of expiation, the day of atonement, they would bring even more sacrifices. And they were never done. There were no seats in the temple. There was nowhere to sit down. Because the work was never done. And what does Jesus do? He brings the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And then he goes into the very heavens themselves. And he comes into the very presence of God. And he sits down on the throne. It's as if the the Old Testament high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and spread the blood and then sit down on the ark. Unthinkable. He would be killed in a moment. But Jesus goes and sits down at the right hand of God because it is finished. And when the man Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, think about it. The dust of earth on the throne of heaven. The body of the Lord Jesus is a real human body made from the earth, even though it's glorified. It's not like some weird angel stuff. It's real human flesh. 
And there is a real human sitting on the throne of the universe. And he is welcome in the presence of a holy God. And he's not just some human being. He is the human being. He is the last Adam. He is the federal covenant head of the new and redeemed humanity. And that means that when he sits in the presence of God and is welcomed there, then we too are in the presence of God in him. We are welcome. We are home. We have been cleansed. We belong. We are holy. We are acceptable in the presence of God. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is just the beginning, you see. He is born, he is made flesh, he is incarnate, so that he can suffer, so that he can die, so that Easter can happen, so that he can be raised from the dead, so that he can ascend, so that he can be seated in the heavenly places in glory. That's the end goal of Christmas. Christmas by itself, without all the other mighty acts of redemption, is absolutely useless. And the apostle says that in him we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So the Lord Jesus came. He was faithful in the office of prophet. He was faithful in the office of priest. And this brings life and hope and restoration, redemption to us. And finally, he is faithful in his office as king. Now we heard about that this morning. The Davidic kingship was just a shadow of the real thing. The real thing is Christ. And we've been singing through Psalm 45. We read Psalm 45, most likely a wedding song of, uh, for the wedding of Solomon to the daughter of Pharaoh. Solomon did have a lot of wives and concubines, which was wrong. But it appears that the daughter of Pharaoh was his uh, main or primary or first wife. He has a special house built for her outside of the walls of the city of David. And this psalm seems to be written for that Wedding. And if you look at the psalm, and you notice the, the wording here, if you look at Psalm 45, and you see what words are spoken here, and you realize that there's something more going on than just a psalm about Solomon. Solomon was a great king, but he was a limited and imperfect king. But look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Well, these are pretty lofty words to speak to a a sinner like Solomon. And then we turn in the scripture to the New Testament, where these words are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. And if you have your Bible handy, it's kind of neat to see these words quoted in Hebrews 1, verse 8, where the apostle applies the words of Psalm 45 to the Lord Jesus Christ, where he says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Anointed. He has made you Christ. He has made you Messiah with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, including Psalm 45. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus, as our eternal king, it means that he says what he said just before he gave the great commission to the church. 
in Matthew chapter 28. He says, go to all the nations, preach the gospel, and baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all to observe all that I have commanded. But before he says that, he says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Who's saying that? It is the last Adam. It is the perfect man. It is the one who has done what Father Adam didn't do. And so power, glory, honor, dominion over all the creation, which we threw away in the fall, has been restored. I can't emphasize this enough, brothers and sisters. The universe, the creation is ruled by a human being. This human being happens to be true God and true man. But the universe is ruled by one of us, a true human being on the throne of heaven. The one who suffered, the one who bled, the one who died is the one who was raised and the one who was given the name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The first Adam was unfaithful in his office as king and plunged us into shame. But the last Adam was faithful in his office and brings us into glory. What does that mean? Well, it means all kinds of things. We could go on for a very long time talking about what it means that Jesus is king of kings. But notice what it says in the, in the confession here. He governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Jesus is our prophet, our chief prophet and teacher, for our redemption. He is our high priest for our redemption. He is our king for our redemption. And redemption is the undoing of our perdition. Redemption is being found when we were lost. Redemption is being healed when we were broken. Redemption is living fully when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And because Jesus is king, and because Jesus is sovereign, and because nothing happens outside of his will, then when Jesus decides to love you, and Jesus decides to give his life for you. And Jesus decides to put his mark on your forehead and say, you belong to me, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. Then no one can change that. No one can take you, that away from you. What does he say to the apostles? John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Not all the attacks of Satan. Not all the temptations of the kingdom of darkness. Not all the hate and bigotry of the world. Not all the sins and weaknesses which still cling to us and assail us. Nothing. No one. Never, ever can separate us from the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is our king, and we are safe in his royal 
and glorious and divine love and protection. That's a beautiful thing. And we need to be reminded of it. Do you ever have it that the devil whispers in your ear and says, look at your miserable life. Look at the things you've said. Look at the things you've thought. Look at the things you've done. Look at the things you've left undone. Look at the mess you are. Look at all the things you messed up. Look at all the relationships you messed up. Look at all the things that are wrong with you, wrong with your mind, wrong with your heart, wrong with your soul, wrong with your relationships, wrong with your life, wrong with your work. You are just a mess. You don't deserve to be called a child of God. Then we need to hold on to the gospel of the threefold office of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because something happened when our priest and our prophet and our king went up into glory and sat down at the right hand of God. Something happened. Well, a whole pile of things happened, but this thing happened as well. Turn, if you can, with me to Revelation 12.10. In Revelation 12, 10, God is giving a vision to John in in, in vision form. He's telling him what happened when Jesus came into heaven at the ascension. John uh, writes in Revelation 12, 10, the following. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Jesus comes into the presence of God in heaven. He sits down at his right hand, and he intercedes for us there as our high priest. And he preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. And not all of the lies and not all of the slander and not all of the temptations, not all of the accusations of the devil can change who you are in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Because of the power and the glory of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, you have the guarantee of a clear conscience before God and that guarantee is stamped on your forehead and so when the devil assails you when your sins grieve you do what Luther used to do and say to the devil get away from me I am a baptized man I am a baptized woman I am a baptized child I belong to the King of Kings. He has bought me with a great price, the greatest price in the universe. And no one can snatch me from his hand. Well, we've looked at the idea of office. We've looked at how we messed it up in Adam, the first Adam. We look at we looked at how the last Adam perfectly fulfills the threefold office. And that, that means life, it means salvation, it means redemption for us. We have a Savior who is faithful. He was faithful. He is faithful. He remains faithful forever. He fulfilled his offices perfectly. Our first father's unfaithfulness in his office led to our perdition. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam, his faithfulness in office brings redemption. Now next week, we'll go on to the next question and answer. We'll consider more about how this affects us in our roles and responsibilities in our offices as we share in Christ's anointing. 
But for today, let's just delight in the glory of Christ and in his perfect and finished work. We've been singing Psalm 45 throughout the service, a tune we don't often sing, so perhaps it's good we've got a lot of practice today. It's a gorgeous psalm. The wedding psalm for Solomon, it points to Christ, the great king of kings. And if the king in this psalm points to Christ, then who does the bride point to? Well, we know that, don't we? Who is the bride of Jesus? It is the church. It is us. And the psalmist is addressing the psalm to Solomon and to Pharaoh's daughter. And he says to Pharaoh's daughter, listen, you've got to forget where you came from. You've got to forget your father's house. You've got to forget Egypt. Of course, for the Jews, Egypt was a place of sin and idolatry and oppression and slavery and bondage. It was a place from which you needed to be saved. And so the psalmist says to Pharaoh's daughter, leave that all behind you, embrace your king, and be united with him in true worship of the true God. And then there will be the joy and the gladness, the glory, the eternal praise that we we sang about and that we will sing about in this psalm. Well, this is all a picture. This psalm is all a picture of the real thing, the real king. And the real bride, Jesus Christ and his beloved church. And it is because of his desire to make you beautiful. And to set his love upon you forever. And to love you and to care for you and to bring you joy and to crown you with glory and to give you delight in him now and forever. That's why Christmas happened. That's why the Son of God humbled himself. That's why he was made flesh so he could suffer, so he could bleed, so he could feel pain, so he could be humbled. He could be humbled unto death, even the death on the cross. He did it because he loves you. He did it to make you beautiful. And he was faithful in his office for you. Even when it hurt. That's so different from those examples that we heard about at the beginning of the sermon. Where people put their own personal convenience and desires and pleasures above their office. Jesus never did that. Even when it was hard. Even when it meant great personal loss. Even when it meant great agony which pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden of Gethsemane. Even when it killed him. He was faithful to his office. And by being faithful, he undid the fall. He did what the first Adam failed to do. He set things right. And the glorious last Adam, crowned with the glory of his threefold office, is bringing about a new creation in which he will live in eternal glory with his glorious bride. A world full of perfectly happy children 
of God. A world in which everything that was broken has been made right again. World without end. Amen.